Howdy. Well, it's been a while, folks. This is episode 100 of Come and Take It, the definitive Texas history podcast. We are so glad that you're listening. We're so glad that you're here with us on this journey. We hope you love the show, and we hope you're sharing the love. Uh, this show does not happen without a few people, and we'd like to send out thank yous. First, I would like to thank Scott and Sean, who have been with me on this journey from the beginning. Uh, their support, friendship, and commitment has just been amazing, so I'm very glad to have them. Also, we would like to thank uh, James Avendroth and Paul Schmel, who have come on as contributing writers and really helped us to do a lot of research and to write some very interesting shows. Your support is we can't put a price tag on the kind of support you guys have helped us with. Thank you so much, James and Paul. Also, we'd like to thank the history podcasters network, including our friends, including our friends, Royfield Brown and Steven Guerra, who have contributed to our show. We'd also, and we'd also like to thank all of our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your generosity and your support. And as much as it may pain us to do so, um, we really do need to give uh, some sort of thanks to the History Channel and their Texas Rising miniseries, which at the beginning of the summer really gave us some new material to work with, gave us a little bit of a break that we didn't have to do so much research. But more importantly, it gave us a venue to uh, kind of find a bunch of new listeners and really get the word out about the podcast. And without that show, um, I don't think we'd be quite where we are today at our 100th episode. So welcome all of you new guys. Go back and listen to the catalog. There's 100 episodes out there. I know it seems like a long road. 100 episodes is in. It's a big milestone. But guess what? We've got 100 more coming up. And we're going to keep doing this as long as you keep listening. We're so happy to share our love of Texas with you. So we hope you'll continue to come back every week and join us here on Come and Take It. And without further ado, here's the show. Subatuma, I have spoken. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. The son of a Comanche war chief and a captured white girl, Quanna Parker grew up to be perhaps the last great leader of his father's people. Though he fought the encroachment of his lands for years, struggling to retain independence for his people, he proved himself remarkably adaptable once there was no other choice for his tribe. But first, what's your favorite animal that's been taxidermied in Texas? Well, if we're talking general category, I'll have to go with the mythical jackalope. I never get tired of seeing those. But if we're talking specifics, then I'm going to go with the giant bear that was at the Hall of Horns in San Antonio when I went there as a child. Uh, somewhere, my parents have a picture of me standing in front of it in my orange Astros cap. And it's one of my favorite pictures of me. And I just think that thing was cool. You know, I've been to the Hall of Horns a couple of times. And uh, base anything in there kind of rules but uh i i'm gonna go uh you know their seafood section is awesome i'm gonna go with a little surf to your turf scott and i'm gonna say that i i believe they have some pretty awesome sharks and some big sail fins in there so any big fish on a wall works for me i think you're both wrong the most awesome taxidermied animal in the state of texas is of course clay henry the beer drinking goat oh we hardly knew you clay 
Rest rest in peace, Clay. <laughs> rest in peace. Oh, I'm gonna go pour out a pour out a beer on the front yard just for him tonight. A warrior, a statesman, and a religious leader, Quanta Parker, more than any other man, bridged the gap between the nomadic lifestyle of the Plains tribes and the sedentary lifestyle they had to adopt when they settled on the reservations. Over the course of his life, his people's way of living transformed almost completely, but he proved himself remarkably adaptable to those changes as they came. Despite the Anglo blood in his veins and the way he rubbed shoulders with some of the most famous Europeans and American leaders of his day, he never entirely gave up his Comanche ways. In the 1830s, the Parker family moved from the United States to open land northeast of present-day Waco. This area, like pretty much all of Texas at the time, was Comanche territory. John Parker, a veteran of the American Revolution, led the group that built a wooden fort to protect their families. This fort, called Fort Parker, was populated by around 30 men, women, and children, mostly Parker's children and grandchildren, as well as members of their church. The men worked in the fields outside the fort while the women worked inside with the children during the day. If the Indians were sighted, the men would rush into the fort to defend their families. It was just such a day in May 1836, not long after Texas won its independence at San Jacinto, that over 100 Comanche, Kiowa, and Wichita invaded the fort, overwhelming their defenders. Five of the men, including John and two of his sons, were killed and several others were wounded. Four children and one of Parker's adult granddaughters, Rachel, were taken away. Most of the children were eventually ransomed and returned to their families. Eight-year-old Cynthia Ann Parker was not. Instead, Cynthia was adopted into the Nakoni Band of the Comanches as a foster daughter of Tabinoka and was raised as a Comanche. She was given the name Nadua, which means someone found, and apparently had a reasonably happy childhood. She later married the warrior Nakona, the son of the renowned chief Iron Jacket. Iron Jacket gained his name amongst the Comanche because he wore a Spanish coat of mail that he'd found. Iron Jacket and Pita both participated in the raid which captured Cynthia. Now, unusual for a Comanche chief, Pita never took another wife, and by all accounts, both of them were a happy and loving couple. Cynthia and Pita's first child was Quana which is a name translated as either sweet smell or occasionally bed of flowers, and it was perhaps a reference to his springtime birth. Although records are scarce for obvious reasons, Quana himself provided some anecdotal evidence about his place and time of birth. As an old man, in a letter to his friend and famous Texan Charles Goodnight, he wrote, quote, From the best information I have, I was born about 1850 on Elk Creek, just below the Wichita Mountains. Now, this would place his birth actually in Oklahoma. However, Parker either did not know the real details of his birth or simply liked to tell a good story, because in 1911, he was seen traveling by automobile near Lubbock, and he told observers he was on his way to visit what he understood was his birthplace at Laguna Sabinas in Gaines County, Texas. If this story is correct, then Quana's birthplace was quite auspicious, as this area had long been considered a sacred burial ground for powerful leaders of various tribes. Evidence indicates that his birth actually took place in either 1845 or 1852. Quana had two younger siblings, a brother named Pecos and a sister named Topsana. The family was separated from each other in 1860 when Quana's mother and sister were captured by American forces in the Battle of the Peace River, a fight that actually took place along Mule Creek. Company H of the United States 2nd Cavalry made the raid on the Comanche, aided by the Texas Rangers under the command of Lawrence Sullivan Ross, or Saul Ross, as he's better known, uh, and we talked about him in our Texas Rangers episode. 
In a strange twist of Texas history, one of the underrangers at the battle was his future friend, Charles Goodnight. While the male members of Quanah's family were likely not at Mule Creek when the camp was attacked, Sol Ross claimed to have killed Pita Nakona in the battle. Quanah later refuted the claim himself, stating the man killed in the raid was named Noba and that his father lived for several more years. This fabrication was no doubt intended to further Sol Ross's political career and apparently had some value as Ross would later become a Texas state senator and governor. Cynthia Ann Parker and her daughter were, quote, reunited with her American family, but she'd spent 24 years and her entire adult life with the Comanche, and she wanted to return to them and the family she built with them. Neither she nor Topsana ever returned to their family. Topsana died of illness in 1863, and Cynthia Ann Parker died in 1870, some say of a broken heart. Pita's actual death occurred around 1864, and Kwana was introduced into the Nakoni Band, where the head chief, Tahayakahip, took him under his wing. He took up Kwana's education and trained him in the ways of the Comanche warrior. Kwana was a quick study and gained prominence as a warrior. In 1867, when Kwana was still a young man, though how young he was is pretty hard to tell given all the confusion around what his birthday is, he went with the Comanche chiefs as an observer at the treaty negotiations at Medicine Lodge, Kansas, between the Native Americans and the U.S. government. Quanah refused to sign the treaty, saying that before he and his band would surrender to the white man, the soldiers would have to come out on the plains and whip them. A year after the treaty was signed, though, Quanah joined a Kiowa war party and began raiding deep into the Comancheria, all the way down to Chihuahua, Mexico. Shortly after these raids, another war party was organized, and they raided south of the Red River, attacking settlements near Gainesville and stealing many mules and horses. Soldiers caught up to the war party as they were returning, and their leader, Bear's Ear, was killed in the attack. Quanta took control of the situation and quickly took command. He ordered braves to drive the horses north of the river so they could escape from the soldiers. This quick thinking was recognized by the other members of the band, and he was chosen as their leader. In June of 1874... Isatai, a Comanche medicine man, called for a sun dance at Elk Creek. This particular ritual had never been a part of Comanche religion, but attracted many of the natives anyway. The sun dance became as much a recruiting opportunity as a religious ceremony, and Quana recruited warriors for raids into Texas to avenge their slain relatives. Other prominent Comanche chiefs felt that these indiscriminate raids weren't really effective and believed that the buffalo hide merchants were actually the true threats to their traditional way of life. These buffalo hunters had been encouraged by the U.S. Army to just slaughter the animals. The hope was that, with their food supply eliminated, Native Americans would be forced to move on to the reservations. The chiefs convinced Quana and others to direct their attacks against the buffalo hunters themselves. A war party made up of Kiowa, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Apache, Sioux, and Comanche. That's pretty far south for the Sioux. They all headed west into the Texas Panhandle. Almost 500 warriors attacked the Buffalo Hunter outpost at Adobe Walls. But they lost the element of surprise as a sharp crack, perhaps a broken beam, awoke the hunters just before the attack. Although they came close to overrunning the barricaded hunters, they were repulsed, largely because these hunters were armed with very accurate and very powerful Sharps hunting rifles. The effectiveness of these weapons is best demonstrated by Quanah's experience in the battle. His horse was shot out from under him at a range of 500 yards as they retreated, and then a ricocheting bullet hit him in the shoulder, and it lodged there. Despite the fact that the attack on adobe walls was a failure, it led to a reversal of policy in Washington regarding the Comanche and their allies. 
As harsh as their policy had been before, they now engaged in active warfare against the Comanche. What would come to be called the Red River War included over 16 battles between 1874 and 1875. It ended in a decisive army victory at the Battle of Palo Duro Canyon. On September 28, 1874, Colonel Ronald McKenzie and his forces, including Tonkoa scouts, who were traditional enemies of the Comanche, destroyed the village at Palo Duro. The Comanche and several of the tribes had been using Palo Duro Canyon as a safe haven and had gathered supplies for the winter there. Now, the loss of human life was very small for both sides, with only one injured in the army and 15 dead on the Native American side. Far more crippling was the army claiming not only the native supplies, but also all the horses. Between 1,500 and 2,000 of the Native Americans' horses were captured, and Mackenzie later had them slaughtered to ensure they would not fall back into enemy hands. This loss was crippling to the Comanche and the other Plains Indians who gathered there. They all depended on the horses not only as their way of conducting warfare, but their very way of life. Without their horses to help them defend or feed themselves, and without the supplies they'd been able to gather, they had to choose between starving or moving to the reservation. Quana and his band of approximately 450 Comanche finally surrendered in June of 1875. He helped Colonel McKenzie and Indian agent James M. Hayworth settle his tribe on the Kiowa Comanche Apache Reservation in southwestern Indian Territory. Parker's was the last tribe of the Texas Plains to come to the reservation, but he was soon named chief over all of the Comanche and also served as a sheriff and a tribal court judge. From his home in Kachi, Oklahoma, called the Star House, Quana proved to be a forceful, resourceful, and able leader. Ever adaptable, Quana used wise investments to become perhaps the wealthiest American Indian of his day. He embraced much of the white culture and took on his mother's surname of Parker. He was well-respected by the Europeans that mingled with him and went on hunting trips with President Theodore Roosevelt, who visited him often. He did not take on all of the white culture, though. He rejected both monogamy and traditional Protestant Christianity. In fact, Starhouse had a bedroom for each of his seven wives and their children, while he had his own rather plain room. In fact, the only notable decorations in his room were a pair of small pictures of his mother and his sister. Quana married eight women over the course of his life and had... Get this, 25 children, although take some that. of them were actually adopted. Take that, Duggars. Yeah, take that, 25. <laughs> uh, now, both of his first two marriages occurred in 1872. One of these was to Tahoye, the daughter of Apache chief Old Wolf. Quan had been visiting her tribe since the 1860s, and they knew him well and liked him. This marriage lasted only a year, though, before Tahoye asked to be sent home because she couldn't learn the Comanche language. His other marriage from 1872 lasted much longer. His wife this time was Wekia, the daughter of Comanche subchief Yellow Bear. Wekia was engaged to another warrior, but she eloped with Quana and several of the tribe's warriors went with them as they fled. Yellow Bear pursued them, though whether to get back his daughter or his warriors is hard to say. In either case, Quana eventually made a peace with his new father-in-law, and the two bands united to form the largest force of Comanche. He married six more women over the years and only separated from his first wife. Now, Quana played a major role in the emergence of the Native American church movement. And this was spawned by an event where he was gored by a bull in southern Texas. The story goes he was visiting his uncle, John Parker, at the time, and the wounds he received from the bull were quite severe. A Mexican curandera, or a kind of a shaman, was summoned to treat the wounds. This woman's cure involved a strong tea that was made from 
fresh peyote, which contains a number of natural occurring chemicals that might have acted as a powerful antibiotic to uh, resist the onset of any, any fevers and things. Of course, he took a massive dose of peyote, and that had some side effects as well. This experience led him to become a proponent of taking peyote, and he'd mix it with water, and they'd take it during traditional Native American church medicine ceremonies. One of Parker's most famous quotes about the religion he helped found and spread was, quote, The white man goes into his church and talks about Jesus. The Indian goes into his teepee and talks with Jesus. Yeah. Well, in many ways, the modern reservation era in Native American history began with the adoption of either the Native American church or the Christianity by nearly every tribe and culture in North America, and they gave up their traditional religions and ways of life. Since neither of these religions really existed in Native American cultures, especially Plains Indian cultures before the 19th century, it's clear that much of Native American life and culture today is heavily influenced by Quanta Parker and the other prominent leaders. After moving onto the reservation and adopting the white traditions that he found useful, Quanta Parker struck up a friendship with Samuel Burke Burnett and his family. This began as a friendship of necessity because Burnett had a cattle ranch on Wichita Falls that was affected by a severe drought. He and other ranchers met with Comanche and Kiowa leaders to lease land on their reservation, nearly one million acres just north of the Red River that was receiving enough rain. Quanta first opposed the opening of tribal lands to grazing by Anglo ranchers, but eventually he would change his position and even become a proponent of this action. He forged close relationships with a number of Texas cattlemen, including as we mentioned earlier, Charles Goodnight, and the Burnett family. By 1880, Quanah was working with these new associates to build his own herds, continuing his shift from being a Plains warrior to more of a sedentary rancher. In 1884, largely due to Quanah's efforts, the tribes, including the Comanche, Kiowa, and Apache, received their first grass payments for selling their grazing rights on their lands. Also in 1884, respect for Quanah had reached such a level even with Texans, that a town in Texas was named for him. He gave the following blessing when he was asked to speak while visiting Quanah, Texas. Quote, It is well that you have done a good thing in honor of a man who has tried to do right, both to the people of his tribe and to his pale-faced friends. May God bless the town of Quanah. May the sun shine and the rain fall upon the fields and the granaries be filled. May the lightning and the tempest shun the homes of her people, and may they increase and dwell forever. Subatuma, I have spoken. Burnett and Parker's friendship grew because Burnett showed a respect not only for Native traditions and culture, but also for their rights. Rather than battling the Native tribes, he learned Comanche ways and treated them as partners. In much the same way, Quana learned Anglo ways and adapted to them rather than treating his white neighbors like enemies. This similarity undoubtedly contributed to the deep friendship the two men shared. Quana reportedly said of Burnett, I got one good friend, Burke Burnett, a big-hearted, rich cowman. Help my people good deal. You see, big man hold tight to money, afraid to die. Burnett helped anybody. Now, this opinion of Burnett's generosity was no doubt influenced by the fact that he'd provided money to aid Parker in having Starhouse built, and he also helped pay for the granite headstones that Quanah bought to mark the graves of his mother and sister. These headstones were part of a deeper quest Quanah undertook to honor his mother and sister. He'd spent years searching before he found their remains and moved them from Texas onto the Comanche Reservation in Oklahoma in 1910. As part of this friendship, Quanah participated in a number of public events that Burnett worked on, 
including a parade with a large group of Comanche warriors at the Fort Worth Stock Show. During this event, Quanah carried a parade lance, which is still on display there today. Quanah rubbed shoulders with a bunch of famous Americans. In 1905, he rode in a parade to celebrate the inauguration of President Theodore Roosevelt. In April, Roosevelt visited Parker at the Star House. The two of them, along with Burnett, went wolf hunting near Frederick, Oklahoma. The trip was not purely a vacation, though, and they discussed serious business. Quana tried to convince the president to let his people keep 400,000 acres of land that the federal government planned to sell to homesteaders. He requested assistance in combating unemployment for the Comanche, now that they had given up their nomadic lifestyle and were trying to adjust to reservation life. Quana was unable to convince Roosevelt to leave the land in question in native hands, and he received little more than a letter from the president stating his concern about the unemployment issue. But it's generally believed that this wolf hunt was one of the reasons behind the creation of the Wichita Mountains Wildlife Refuge. Although the date and place of his birth has never been definitively established, Quana Parker's death, perhaps because of the fame he achieved, was much better documented. He died on February 23, 1911, at his home in Starhouse. More than 4,000 people attended his funeral, and the U.S. government placed a red granite monument over his grave. The inscription on this monument reads, Resting here until the day breaks and shadow fall and darkness disappears is Quana Parker, last chief of the Comanche. Quana was originally buried at Post Oak Mission Cemetery near Kachi, Oklahoma, but was moved to Fort Sill Post Cemetery along with his mother and sister in 1957. His life is perhaps best summed up by biographer Bill Neely, who wrote, Not only did Quana pass within the span of a single lifetime from a Stone Age warrior to a statesman in the age of the Industrial Revolution, but he never lost a battle to the white man and also accepted the challenge and responsibility of leading the whole Comanche tribe on the difficult road toward their new existence. It's a pretty remarkable guy. Mm -hmm. So when I was uh, living in uh, near Wichita Falls when I was a kid uh, in North Texas, we did live actually not far from Quanta, Texas. And Quanta Parker was pretty prominent in the local lore and legend. Um, so there was a mountain, there's a, there's a, big kind of a hill large hill mountain just between vernon and quana and it's uh, uh, alone there's nothing it's the prairie plains and then there's this prominent single promontory prominent peak and the story is that that's where quana and his warriors would hide out sometimes from the rangers or from the army so there's there's a lot of connection to quana parker in that area and of course i've been to fort sill which is in Lawton, Oklahoma, and seen his grave. So he is very definitely a, a big part of, uh, especially of North Texas, uh, legend and mythology. To me, the interesting thing about the guy is that, you know, just starting from the beginning is he's a, he's kind of a man between two worlds. Mm -hmm. And I think like so many of the, the Texan heroes we, we talk about in that idea of Texas is that, uh, is that idea of reinvention there's life events that happen and then you sort of adjust, change, transform and become this very prominent and in, in piece of, of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I think is fascinating is that he didn't just, you know, he could very easily have been that figure. There's like, I'm just very prominent in, you know, the Indian native American Comanche world. And then once they're on the reservation, he kind of just fades away into history, but that didn't happen. He, like you said, he adapted, he changed and he became a very important driver in their culture. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just cool. I also think it's cool that we didn't talk about it, but 
you know, his mother, Cynthia Ann Parker, was also the inspiration in part for uh, the movie The Searchers. So yes. I thought that was cool. Yeah, it was one of the inspirations for The Searchers. You know, no one fought harder than than Quana did at resisting the encroachment of the whites on on the Comanche. And yet the ironic thing and the wonderfully ironic thing is no one worked harder to make them included after they went into the reservation. But he also, he was able to find that balance. And maybe it's because that he was, like you said, Mike, a man between two worlds. He was able to find that fine balance of, of, uh, of adapting the things from the modern culture that were beneficial and helpful to the, to the people and, but still retaining their legacy and their traditions as much as they possibly could. So what do you guys think the most important thing about Quanah's Parker life is? I think he's, yeah, he's, he is that bridge between two worlds. As the biographer said, he, he went from a stone age warrior to a statesman in the industrial revolution. He's the, he's that last man who, who crosses that gap um, between eras and he yeah. really is, he's the embodiment of an, of the end of an era and the beginning of another one. Yeah. And see- I think, as I was say, I think Quanta Parker sort of symbolizes and uh, exemplifies the kind of the best case scenario. Um, I mean, it was, you look at history and it's like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is really horrible what the settlers did that came into the country and took the land and pushed the native peoples off of it and put them on reservations and all of that. But within that is the story of Quanta Parker where, you know, like you said, he's a man between two worlds and he doesn't really accept the inevitable. He fights it until the very end. But then once it becomes clear that he's not going to be able to stop it, he finds that path through it and works with, um, you know, the Americans coming in and he, they make the best of the situation. Well, it's, it's sad. I mean, we talked about in an earlier episode, we talked about the idea of the Great Raid. And, you know, we've talked about the the threat and power of what the Comanche nation represented. And I think you sort of see this this as the real sort of transformation of, for a while, Comancheria, as it came to be known, you know, was sort of, it was a very real thing. I mean, the Comanche nation and their domination of the North Texas Plains was, you know, absolute. And then we just sort of saw this change of now whether just a, a compartmentalization on the reservation and it's okay, well now we have to adopt these cultures and pieces. Uh it's it's really interesting that he always seemed to find the way to keep the Comanche people first, to try to raise their concerns, to try to take care of the Comanche throughout everything. Like he mm-hmm. never really he always sort of uh knew where he stood. And the big part of that was that he, for a long time, he really considered the whites to have killed his mother and sister, that he, they took him, they took them away from their families and ripped them, ripped them away from that. And then they died. So he considered, even though his mother was, had been raised in captivity, he considered her to have died in captivity and same with, with his sister. Well, in a way they did though. Yeah. In a way they did. That's true. Uh, If, so if you actually go and look up a picture of Quanta Parker, uh, there's a very, very famous picture of him in his full, full chief war chief robes and, and with that Lance. And he is absolutely 1000% the epitome of what you picture as, as a Comanche warrior, as a native American chief. Um, 
the only thing he's missing and because they didn't usually wear them was the, was the feather headdress, but everything else it's, it's almost stereotypical. And yet he embodies and exemplifies that, that noble Comanche warrior, uh, in, in every way. And so hopefully we'll put that picture up on, on our website and on the, on Facebook for people to see. What's been really interesting is we, we've done a pretty deep look at kind of the, you know, the antithesis of, of the Comanche. We talked a lot about the Texas Rangers and sort of their interactions with them and, and seeing it from the side. And then we had, there's a lot of stories that we've covered that, that sort of, of what the Comanche represented to the early Texas settlers. Um, but it's, it's, it's very interesting to sort of say, well, this was a person who openly combated people and then took Teddy Roosevelt wolf hunting. <laughs> and befriended rangers. Bully. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think that's, that's you know, that's the thing of this time is, is that, uh, you know, a century ended and a new century began. And it was a new era in, for better or worse, in... Uh, in the Midwest and in Texas and in America. Yeah. I mean, he had an automobile. He, he, he learned, he, he learned how to drive a car, a Ford model T car, you know, and he, <laughs> he learned English and he'd never spoken English before because his mother had forgotten English by the time he was born. So he learned English as a second language and he was a very eloquent person. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like, and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. Now you can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank our friend James Abendroth for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. Now we know you love this show. We know you love Texas, so do your part. Get out there and tell your friends. Go to iTunes and leave a review because that really helps us out and finds new listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>